Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Hamilton police have arrested and charged a man in the anti-Muslim hate crime that took place in Ancaster on Monday. This is the second attack against Muslims in a month. What concrete action is being done to fight Islamophobia? And France wants Canada to open its borders to French tourists, but Prime Minister Trudeau doesn't look like he's going to budge on this issue. Are we being overly cautious? And as of tomorrow, Ontario is lifting its mandatory COVID testing for fully vaccinated visitors and staff at long-term care homes. Now, with the threat of the Delta variant looming, is it too soon to lift those restrictions? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We want to continue our coverage of the uh, horrific attack that occurred against uh, two Muslim women in uh, Ancaster on Monday evening. Uh, the story of, I'm sure you are aware of right now, charges have been laid. There is a man in custody, and a number of charges have been laid against him. Uh, Hamilton Chief of Police Frank Bergen says that Hamilton's Muslim community is currently feeling unsafe in the city. We continue to be outraged by these blatant acts of hatred. We stand with the Muslim community here in Hamilton and across the country in condemning Islamophobia. Okay, well, let's, let's talk about moving this to the next level, though. Uh, joining us on the program, uh, we're so pleased to welcome to the program Fatima Abdallah, who is the uh, National Council of Canadian Muslims. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. This is a, a, a very important conversation that we need to have. Uh, you've heard the characterization by the Chief of Police. Uh, the Prime Minister's even weighed in on this, as you know. Uh, what, is, what is the mood? What is the feeling uh, in, in the Muslim community right now? Yeah, um, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on your show this morning. Um, the mood, the mood for the Muslim community right now, I guess, is, um, we're devastated and outraged, um, by, by the news of, of the most recent attack of, uh, on, on, on another Muslim family, uh, but this time in Hamilton, Ontario. It seems as though, uh, we see coming on these calls, um, a, a, a every week and, and making calls to action um, enough is enough and it is time uh, it is it is time for commitment and uh, real tangible policy change uh, because we've heard uh, the condemnations and we've heard the outrage uh, but Islamophobia is a rising concern um, and and a crisis at this point that we believe requires a national effort from all levels of government including uh, the federal provincial and municipal levels of government and that is what we will be calling for um, during our national action summit against Islamophobia this July 22nd it's, it comes down to this. I mean, we don't need platitudes at this stage. You, know, you, you look at what happened in, in Ancaster and Hamilton here on Monday evening. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at what happened in London just a few weeks ago, the, the terrible mm-hmm. uh, occurrence there where a family was essentially wiped out. And you have to ask yourself, you know, we, we don't need any more condemnation of Islamophobia. We need some mm-hmm. action to try to prevent these sorts of things from happening. Yeah. Uh, it must be very frustrating for you. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely uh, very frustrating, and, and and to think that this isn't even the first time uh, that something as devastating has happened uh, to the Canadian Muslim community. We saw uh, the Quebec City mosque attack in 2017, mm-hmm. um, and and later to that, we saw uh, Brother Muhammad Hassan's office killed right in front of the Imo Mosque right here in Toronto, um, and 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 after that, it's been uh, ongoing attacks on Alberta's Muslim women. Um, in both Edmonton and in Calgary. Uh, so this really showcases that this is not an issue um, just in Hamilton. This is not an issue just in London. This is an issue in Hamilton as much as it is in London, as much as it is in Calgary, as much as it is in Edmonton, uh, as much as it is here in Toronto. It's a national issue, and, and it is time that we uh, address it like it is one. 
and and we're talking about the, some of the violent acts, which sadly led to some some deaths, and uh, that mm-hmm. in itself is is crisis situation. But there there are numerous other. Uh, examples of yeah. Islamophobia that, that I know you've certainly chronicled, and, and you know, uh, desecration of, of mosques, and, and that's happened in a couple of the Hamilton mosques here in Hamilton. Uh, we've seen this happen in other areas as well. What 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 is the next step here? I mean, let's, we're looking at, at uh, I'll hope an action plan at some stage here. But you're mm-hmm. absolutely right; it has to be all three levels of government that are involved in this. Mm-hmm. How how do, how do you make something like that happen? Yeah. Um, so we do have our National Action Summit Against Islamophobia, which will be happening um, July 22nd, so next week. Um, this, this, this Friday, we will be launching, this Friday as in tomorrow, uh, we will be launching our policy recommendations list, which includes uh, policy recommendations for all levels of government, uh, federal, provincial, and municipal levels of government, um, in, in ways that the, the, the levels of government can combat Islamophobia in both its violent and systemic forms. Uh, because like Bill, like you just had mentioned, uh, Islamophobia uh, does take place in, in more of a deep-rooted issue um, and, and, and in more of the systemic manners as well, rather than just the most violent attacks that we have seen, um, like the devastating attack in London and, and, and the devastating attack in Toronto and in Quebec. Um, and it is these ongoing uh, issues of Islamophobia that we need to address as a society uh, so that we don't see uh, another London, Ontario, or we don't see another Quebec City mosque attack. Um, and and it's, it's important for us to uh, make these policy recommendations, and, and, and uh, it, it is time for, for real tangible action um, and, and enough of the condemnation. How do you get their ear? The Fatima, that, that's, I guess, the number one question right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, your policy convention will come up tomorrow. You're going to release a, a series of recommendations. I, I hope mm-hmm. elected officials understand that these are action items. You're not just asking them to, to look at them and, and file them away someplace. We want to have a discussion. What you release yeah, tomorrow exactly. should actually be a catalyst for further discussion, I would think. Exactly, exactly. Um, it, it, we've, we're taking it with a grain of salt. It is important um, for us to understand that uh, the outcome and, and the results of the summit is what will truly matter. Um, and, and that is how we'll, it will be the real test of, of commitment of these, um, of, of the levels of government. Uh, post-London attack, we have heard every single, uh, politician in, in, in every single level of government, uh, stand up and condemn the attack, call it an attack on terror, um, and, and make commitments to change, uh, and, and, uh, the outcome of this summit uh, will uh, showcase the real, uh, true commitment to to uh, making the real tangible policy change. Um, and just this last month, we have seen uh, the federal government um, make amendments to online hate provisions. We have seen uh, two new white supremacist organizations added on to Canada's terror list. And we've seen the provincial government make a commitment to $300,000 to combat Islamophobia and systemic racism within the education system. These are all critical first steps, but Islamophobia and systemic racism is a much larger um, and and deeper issue um, that requires uh, much more to immediately happen. What's your relationship with uh, with the 
police associations and, and, and that authority. I mean, let's face it, any, any law that's passed, any bylaw that's passed, is only as good as the enforcement of, of that law. And uh, what is the relationship? I know I've, I've talked to some members of the Muslim community in the Hamilton area and the London community over the last number of weeks, mm-hmm. uh, and, and they're, well, they're skeptical, uh, which I, I find mm-hmm. troubling. I mean, if, if you don't build that bridge, that, that's a key part of, of what has to happen going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, NTCM um, continues to call and, and urge on um, enforcement to uh, address address these crimes as they are, um, and uh, I I find that the most important issue, the most most important thing um, is to address an attack uh, in the manner that it is, um, and so. It, we often uh, urge officers and, and enforcement officers to call it for what it is, um, because that is the most important uh, key to the to the factor. Our policy recommendations lists will also include uh, a few uh, recommendations um, in, in, in policing um, and and anti-Muslim hate in in that realm as well. Which includes, I would think, education of, of, of people in police services so they understand yeah. exactly the, what's going on and not just that, but the impact that it's having on the community. One of the things that, yeah. that I wanted you to address, because I've talked to the chief of police about this and, and others, is we're looking at, at hate crime here, and the, the, mm-hmm. the charges against this individual are severe, and as they should be, considering mm-hmm. the, the description of the incident. But police will also make another uh, evaluation of something which they call a hate incident, which may not mm-hmm. rise to the level, as they say, of laying a charge. But, you know, if somebody walks past you on the street and, and, and mm-hmm. you know, starts you know, using abusive language about you, about your uh, your faith, uh, any that mm-hmm. they call it an incident, and I, I don't know how we deal with that because th- that's the precursor to what could lead to violence yeah. and th- that that attitude and and those sorts of actions. Yeah, I I, I do I do agree with you um, on that. It's it's um, a, a term that I had learned this last month was, um, and and I somewhat dislike this using this term, uh, mm-hmm. but it's a term of. Uh, minor versus major uh, forms of hate. Uh, but to me, a hate crime is a hate crime, uh, whether it be a racial slur, whether it be uh, someone uh, disrespecting you. Uh, to me, it is, it is an act of hate is an act of hate. Um, and it is time that we do uh, address it as such. Because you know what? You're right in that um, the more we allow for these things to continue to happen within our society, uh, the more it infiltrates and, and grows into something as devastating as what, what has happened in London, Ontario. Well, because I was talking to one family about this just a little while ago, and they were concerned about an incident that happened with their daughters who were downtown in Hamilton. And, mm-hmm. and there was a, a group of people, young man, males as it turned out, that were mm-hmm. yelling some racial slurs. And that, I guess, to use the police definition, would fall into the eyes of a racial inc- or a hate incident as opposed to a crime. But those mm-hmm. girls felt intimidated. You don't know how far they're going to take that, that, that anger that they're feeling right now. That, that's that's yeah. no wonder it's frightening. It may not rise yeah. to the level of a crime but it's it's a crime in those people's minds because they feel i can't be safe on the street and that's that's really the, the major concern here if yeah, you can't feel exactly. safe walking down the street or going to a shopping plaza uh because you're afraid of how people might respond to you we, we have a major problem and, and I, as mm-hmm. you say it's not just a hamilton problem it's happening in in cities all over the country 
Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a deeper rooted issue and, and it is time that uh, we address it as such and, and we turn our uh, calls for action into uh, real tangible policy measures and change um, to, to, to stop this stuff from continuing to happen. I, I know that the chief made some comments about uh, the incident on Monday, and I'm sure you've seen all the details about this as well. And mm-hmm. uh, the fact that there were some people that, that heard what was going on and actually interceded, and uh, I, I guess that made the, the perpetrator take off for a while. They eventually found him, of course, and he was arrested. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've seen the outpouring of support in London uh, you know, at the mosque yeah. for the ceremony. The prime minister and a number of other uh, political leaders showed up. Uh, that that tells me, Fatima, that it, there there is support here in this community mm-hmm. uh, and, and there is a, a feeling that we need to do something here, but it's got to be mm-hmm. channeled and it's, we have to use that that empathy and that, that, that anger exactly. about what's happening to your people and channel it into change. And, and that's exactly. the step that seems to be missing here, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I do, I have seen a, a, a lot of uh, messages of, of condemnation and the number of messages of, uh, of, of support um, from the larger community. Um, but it is, it, you're right in that it is time that we uh, channel this into um, real calls for action and real calls for change. Um, it, it is, I guess it's, it's an issue that the larger society is starting to see and starting to understand and call it for what it is. Um, which is largely important, um, but now it is uh, time to hear from, from, from our levels of government uh, to see how they will be addressing it and, and uh, to see their real test to commitment um, for change. Well, because we've seen mixed messaging haven't we mm-hmm. uh, you know you've got you've got some legislatures that are actually banning hijabs and others that are, are trying to embrace this and say we need to do something about this uh, mm-hmm. th- there's got to be some some consistent support here and, and and a clear message as to what governments are going to do such as when you release your recommendations tomorrow uh, I'd like to think we get an immediate reaction from from federal provincial and, and municipal leaders to say yes we're going to do something about this Mm-hmm. Um, and more than just yes, we're going to do something about this, but actually make that change and actually yeah. make these 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 policy measures uh, come into real tangible action. Um, these these policy recommendations will list out uh, over sixty uh, recommendations in, in how um, Islamophobia can be combated in both its systemic and violent forms. Um, and, and I do believe that that differentiation is also very important uh, because, as we've already discussed today, uh, Islamophobia and, and, and anti-Muslim hate is, is far deeper rooted than um, the, the devastating violent attacks um, and, and the hate-motivated hate, hate uh, crimes and attacks. Uh, it's, it's within our institutions and it's within our system, um, and that's where we need to address it first. I mean, when we look at the incidents of, of hate crimes, and we're talking about the incident with, in, in Ancaster, of course, and the Islamophobia, but I, I know that the, our listeners right now, I mean, there are people in the Jewish community and the black community, uh, the people of color, LGBTQ community that are saying, mm-hmm. yeah, what about us? And, and yes, they, they need to be included in that conversation. Uh, mm-hmm. As I mentioned I, in my commentary this morning at 810 on, on our station, uh, mm-hmm. you can't solve a problem until you actually acknowledge that there is a problem, and we have a problem here, that our elected yeah. officials who are sworn to protect us and give us safe streets and safe neighborhoods they've got to respond to that yeah no definitely definitely 
Um, and, and that is something that we do uh, often address is that um, street harassment bylaws uh, will, will not only uh, aid the Muslim community, but every single uh, racialized minority. Um, any single person who looks like a vis- who visually looks like another um, is in somewhat of uh, of uh, a fear and, and 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 tension in our society right now, um, and that shouldn't be the case. Well, we're hoping that uh, that what you're going to be releasing tomorrow is going to be that catalyst, and, and there needs to be further discussion. Uh, thank you so much for the time today, uh, Fatima. We'll stay in touch, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll, down the road we can talk about some of the improvements that are being made. Uh, we yes. can only hope that uh, that's how they're going to respond. But take care, and we'll talk mm-hmm. again soon. Thank you for having us. Take care. Take care. Fatima Abdallah, National Council of uh, Canadian Muslims. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tomorrow. Here in Ontario, we move into phase three, and a lot of things are going to open up gyms, uh, movie theaters to a certain extent, restaurants and places like that. But what about internationally? What's happening there? Uh, There have been calls from a number of different countries right now for Canada to relax some of the restrictions that they've imposed over the last little while. But uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is shrugging off renewed calls abroad to reopen Canada's border. Global News' Brick Zamprin has the details. A coalition of frustrated legislators from across the U.S. Midwest has formally asked the White House and Ottawa to reopen the border to fully vaccinated travellers. But Justin Trudeau says Canadians don't want to go back into lockdowns again that could result from reopening too quickly. It would be catastrophic and it would be heartbreaking to have to go back into lockdown as some countries are now looking at with surges in the Delta variant because we were overly eager to reopen by a few weeks. France has reopened its borders to Canadian tourists and is also calling on Canada to reopen to the French. Travel restrictions at the border have been extended on a monthly basis for more than a year and are currently set to expire next Wednesday. Rick Samprin, 900 CHML News. Are we being overly cautious here? Let's uh, bring Sam Pizzelli into the conversation. Sam is the Director of Research with Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, speaking to us from France, by the way, and if the French government is also putting pressure on uh, the Prime Minister and others right now. Sam, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us on the show today. Hey, Bill. Nice to be with you. Are, are we being overly cautious here in Canada? Well, I mean, look, I have a vested interest in this because I live in France, uh, although I'm a British subject, and I have all my immediate family in Toronto and, and Montreal. So... Um, But the reality is this. Canada recorded latest cases per million at about 12, based on worldometer data. There's only one country in Europe that's lower than Canada, and that's Germany. Every other country is above. Of course, UK, Portugal, Spain are way above. And then um, they've they've all increased over the past few uh, couple of weeks. Um, not, Not a single one's actually showing a decrease. And when you look at Canada, you are pretty much flat. So I do understand that you wouldn't want to risk all the work that you've done, probably going to end up being one of the best vaccinated um, countries, perhaps past Israel and some others uh, very soon, um, to undo all that work. What's happening in France right now? Maybe you could just remind our listeners, uh, Sam, uh, as to the restrictions that President Macron has put there vis-a-vis travel. Uh, you know, proof of vaccination, I know, is part of that, and there's been some other things that he's talked about. Yeah, I mean, there are quarantines for people coming from different uh, color-coded countries. Obviously, the, the worst ones being where the beta variant of the virus is, uh, is uh, common. And so that includes obviously South Africa, although the Delta variant is pretty much squashing every other variant wherever it goes. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but then you've also got, and the quarantine isn't as, as harsh as perhaps you've got in Canada. I know when my son went there, he had to literally stay in a hotel for 10 days um, and not, not allowed to leave. So th- th- that's certainly something that France has been a little bit more loose on. And then, of course, mask wearing is still there. But when you go in a restaurant, you can dine indoors. You don't have to wear your mask, obviously, because you're eating. So there's quite a few things that have opened up. And I think we're on our way to opening up nightclubs and places like that, which will be, um, unfortunately, I think, centers of gravity for the virus. In the clip we played just before you joined us, Sam, the, the Prime Minister was talking about, uh, you know, we don't want to let unvaccinated uh, travelers into this country. Uh, can unvaccinated, can they even get on a plane? I, I was under the impression that there are some pretty severe restrictions about who can fly and who can't fly these days vis-a-vis vaccinations. Well, I, I suppose different airlines are, are, are applying different uh, rules, but I can tell you that you don't have to be vaccinated to get on a plane. You have to wear your mask, continue to wear your mask, you have to have a negative test, and not for everywhere. Uh, you know, you can travel from here to Holland, for example, without any restrictions. You, they don't ask for any details. Um, so that's, there, are, there are differences, but, but I, I don't think you need to be fully vaccinated to get on the plane. But there was a motion that was passed, I guess it was two, three weeks ago now, by the European Union, uh, suggesting vaccination passports. And has that not come into effect yet? Um, not yet across, across the, you know, a, a, a union-wide, European Union-wide mm-hmm. path that I'm aware of yet. But certainly in France, from um, going forward, your, your, your ability to get into a restaurant, a movie theater, a theater, etc., will depend on you having a, an app on your phone with a QR code that says either you're fully vaccinated or you have recently had the, the virus and recovered or that you have a negative test in the past 48 or 72 hours. So those restrictions, of course, that are being applied have led to a massive jump in um, enrollments in the vaccination programs. Over 2 million people have, done, have, have, have signed up over the past two days. Because I'm getting the, the the feeling that the French government is really trying to be open about this and say, look, at, you know, we just want to play ball here uh, because they've loosened their restrictions, as you know, and, and let Canadians come in there. Uh, and, and as to the proof of vaccination, they've said that for Canadian travelers just have to show proof of vaccination. I mean, you know, like I've got a picture of mine on my phone. That would be all I'd need to show authorities at the airport in Bingo Bango. The, the, the ambassador, the French ambassador, of course, uh, Karine Raspal, has already said, look, at, uh, if you're going to continue to do this, there could be some ramifications. As she said, uh, you know, our, our diplomats will go to other countries, our visitors will go to other countries, our tourists will go to other countries, uh, and that could cause some negative connotations between French and Canada. It, it doesn't sound like a threat, but it does indicate that, look, at there's some ramifications if you don't play ball with us here. Yeah, I don't think any country should force another country to dictate their health policy. At the end of the day, if, if they want to play reciprocal, then they can just change the rules for, the, for Canadians. Any Canadian who leaves to come over here will probably have to quarantine when they go back. I don't know what the rules are for Canadian citizens as regards quarantine. But, but frankly, um, different countries currently are running their own health programs. You know, I think, I think for example, Germany has advised about uh, people not to go to Spain. And that's within the European Union. I mean, they're not barred from going to Spain, but they're, they're advised not to. So uh, th- th- these issues, I mean, ramifications, I think what, what's the worst case that can happen to Canada is that they won't get French visitors. And I don't know how important that is in the context of uh, 
tourism in the context of the economy of, of, of Canada. But th- that's the thing that we have, uh, we have an issue here. You, you can't force a country to accept your citizens on a health basis. And, and the, the commerce, of course, is still available. That's happening. And uh, that's why I was kind of wondering, and Jack said, what plane she's on here when she's, uh, excuse the bad metaphor, uh, you know, trying to indicate that this is the case. Uh, but your numbers that you've just mentioned to us a couple of minutes ago uh, about what's happening in some of the other countries uh, seems to substantiate the Prime Minister's view here that, look, at it's not quite the time yet. Uh, you don't want to see another spike. And we've seen that travel has been a factor in, in spikes in the past. Uh, is there a concern in Europe right now, Sam, about those numbers in some of those other countries? France seems to be doing pretty well. Uh, they, they seem to have stabilized this. But as you mentioned, some of the other countries, not so much. And and, and we really don't want to see a fourth wave. Uh, is, is there any talk of that yeah i mean I'm, I'm seeing ripples and in some countries waves but every single country that i look at so i've got my list here uk portugal spain belgium netherlands united states uh, france israel italy austria germany in the past two weeks they have all gone up in terms of the numbers per million but germany for example has got from seven per million to 11 so that's what i would call a ripple the UK has gone from 216 to 515. There's a wave for you, right? Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the issue is, of course, that vaccines, if, if I'm fully vaccinated, I can still carry the virus. Mm-hmm. Either as an asymptomatic person or, obviously, God forbid, symptomatic. But, of course, you could ask people to have a, uh, a test before they come. But the tests are within 20, 72 hours. Mm-hmm. They're not necessarily a uh, proof that you didn't then catch it or that even when you did the test, you hadn't just caught the virus. So, but at some point, Bill, at some point, we have to find a way around this because it becomes catch-22. There will be pockets of infections. What about the United States? Is travel allowed between Canada and the United States? And, and as you know, the United States is a disunited States when it comes to vaccinations and um, cases. Some, some, some states have got significant rises, others don't. So. If that border is open, is there a limit on you can't go to Missouri, but you can go to, uh, I don't know, New York City, for example? I don't know how you police that. I wish I could get on a plane and go to New York City, but we're not allowed to right now. That's that's right. not considered to be business that's, travel. That's probably the right thing. Yeah, it's probably well, right now it probably is. Although you can see by look the streets on Broadway and Fifth Avenue, a lot of people are still going to New York City. There was an incident that happened a couple of days ago that uh, with President Macron that I wanted to get your read on, though, if I could, Sam. Uh, he talked very strenuously about the idea of vaccination passports. Uh, it didn't didn't say it was going to be the law, but he says we have to seriously consider this uh, for, as you say, when restaurants and other places like this open up, and even for travel. And and we're told that there was a subsequent uh, uptake all of a sudden in vaccine. Uh, that's a worldwide problem now. I, I know you've talked about that in the past, uh, about these the, the vaccination levels lo- starting to level off right now, and people are concerned about that uh, because we need to get that herd immunity that we always talked about. Is is that a concern in France about the, the vaccination levels? And you talk about some of these, as you say, blips, not necessarily spikes. But is, is, is that the unvaccinated that are, that are causing those? Well, the anecdotal evidence suggests that the majority of people that unfortunately are becoming victims, dying of COVID currently, are unvaccinated. Uh, And that's across the U.S., in the U.K., uh, elsewhere. So the vaccine may not prevent 100% an infection. We know they don't. Mm -hmm. We we knew that from the trials, which which were phenomenally successful. So what you've got is a problem here in that in France, there is a perception, a negative perception towards vaccines, or had been at least historically, 
And uh, President Macron's decision to announce these uh, upcoming rules led to a significant, almost over 2 million uh, enrollments in the vaccine program over two days. So I, I think if, if that's what people need to be enticed to go and get their doses, then, that, then so be it. Uh, countries like the United Kingdom, I think Canada is the same, has a much lower reticence towards vaccinations. United Kingdom, I think by the um, oh, middle of August, end of August, will probably be at 90% of all adults above 18 fully vaccinated. So, you know, I mean, what they need to do is to get the 12 to 18-year-olds vaccinated. Mm-hmm. But, but in general, I think what France did was quite successful. I think Spain's going down the same road. Germany sounds like they're not going to try that, that uh, particular method. But anywhere who are seeing this, if they can enforce it, I think it's a good method to, uh, to take forward. Well, it certainly sent a message to, to the, the people of France, didn't it? That look at, you know, you've got to get on, on here. You've got to do this because I'm hearing from a lot of people that are saying, "Look, at, I, I don't want the vaccination," and they've got a variety of reasons. And I'm sure you've heard dozens of them as well. But they figure if everybody else is going to get vaccinated, and I can still go into restaurants as long as I'm wearing a mask, why should I bother? But when, when Macron starts to say, "Well, not necessarily," uh, all of a sudden, I think that's what's going to happen here too. That we, it might cause people to rethink exactly what they're doing. Uh, because that is the concern and you're right we had an epidemiologist the other day on the program uh, from Toronto that uh, simply suggested if you're not going to get vaccinated he says it's not a matter of if you're going to get COVID it's when you're going to get it which is a pretty chilling message absolutely and and why would it not be that because again the people who are unvaccinated if they're going to be continuing that way assuming that vaccinated people won't pass the virus they are wrong they are absolutely wrong. You know, we, we know that the vaccinated people have a lower, lower risk of um, actually catching the infection, then have lower amount of virus, etc. But as these variants, with the Delta variant, for example, is a fitter virus, is able to transmit better. So I'm pretty sure um, it's going to eventually end up infecting whoever doesn't have a, a vaccine and some people who are vaccinated. And let me tell you this, Bill. I took a risk calculated risk is personal fair enough uh, with the I, I had the astrazeneca shot with mm-hmm. the one in uh, 14 in, in a million chance of getting a um, a blood clot or one in a one million chance or 10 in uh, one million chance of getting guillain-barre syndrome with the pfizer vaccine or whatever the numbers are <coughs> excuse me why why do i have to then carry that risk and burden and someone else is going to piggyback on my risk taking right So Mm -hmm. I'm not suggesting they should be forced into it, but where's my reward, apart from obviously saving my own life? But I think there should be some element of of positivity. It's like people who want to smoke, they have to go and stand outside. That's fair enough. It's a similar view that I've got on this. Of course, not everybody is choosing not to take a vaccine. Some people can't take a vaccine or, or don't respond to it. But if you're absolutely saying it, I don't want it because I'm worried about 5G chips or whatever it is, then there has to be some consequences. Well, I find it remarkable that sometimes the people that are saying, no, I'm not going to bother, we, we have a remarkably high number of people in the healthcare field over here uh, that have not been vaccinated yet. And I figure, what is holding you up? You, you're working with frail and elderly people that are ill. Uh, you know, you're a carrier, you're a potential carrier. What, it, it, I, I can't understand the mindset in situations yeah. like this. And I, I agree with you. And I, I'm not saying there should be winners and losers, but, you know, I mean, if you want to go into a restaurant that says no shirt, no shoes, no service, you 
don't get served if you don't have a shirt on. That's all there is to it. Uh, there, there is a difference, though, Bill. I mean, at the end of the day, whoever takes the vaccine, it's like if I don't wear a shirt, okay, maybe I'm increasing my risk of uh, uh, skin cancer due to exposure to UV light. But in reality, I'm not actually causing anybody any harm, and I'm not carrying a particular risk. Taking a vaccine does have a risk. We have to accept that. But the point is, if you don't want to take it because of reasons that are beyond that risk issue, because now we've got over 3 billion people who've been vaccinated and, you know, the world hasn't come to an end. And if, if it's beyond that and it's based on unreasonable uh, hypotheses that, that haven't been proven, that's where I think the line has to be drawn. Just uh, we got a minute or so left here. I just want to recap so our listeners understand because the, the pretty strong language. We're going to talk about the U.S. situation because there's a lot of pressure uh, from a number of the, the border states in the United States uh, on on the Biden administration to do something about this, and on the Biden administration towards the the, the, the Prime Minister here in Canada uh, to do something about this. Uh, but but you put a different slant on this, and I think it's a very important element to this. And the numbers are on the increase. Do you really want to risk this at that stage? And and uh, it, I, I can understand the merit that argument when you put it in that context what's happening in europe right now and even what's happening in a lot of the states uh, that we've just talked about and not coincidentally by the way to your last point uh, a lot of the states that are seeing spikes right now also have very low vaccination rates so we're i guess the takeaway here sam is we're not out of the woods yet are we oh god absolutely not i mean every time this virus will win and it will kill and it will continue to maim you know of course i don't mean it physically but but if we continue to behave the way that we're doing, removing masks for whatever reason and not getting vaccinated, it's literally inviting it, inviting it in to ruin your life. I don't understand why you would want to do that when you know exactly what the risks with a vaccine are, which are minute. Well, the Prime Minister says here there's going to be a reevaluation, quote unquote, in a couple of weeks, and hopefully it's going to be because those numbers are down. Sam, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for taking some time for us. Stay well, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Bill. You too. Take care. Sam Fazelli, Director of Research with Bloomberg Intelligence, who is uh, stationed in France today as he speaks to us. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's about to get easier for Ontarians to go see their loved ones in long-term care. Global's Brianna Carnegie explains. Fully vaccinated people will soon no longer need a negative COVID-19 test to enter a long-term care home in Ontario. The change takes effect on Friday, the same day the province moves into step three of reopening. In a statement, Minister of Long-Term Care Rod Phillips says this change is made possible because of the incredible efforts of Ontarians to get vaccinated. As for people who have just one dose or are not vaccinated, they will still need to be tested for COVID-19 before entering a long-term care home. Also on Friday, there will no longer be a on visitors to the facilities. Buffet dining will be allowed to resume, as are resident absences, off-site excursions, and activities like singing and dancing. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. Certainly welcome news. I mean, if you consider it was about a year or so ago that we were talking about how this pandemic was ravaging long-term care facilities, both staff and residents. And, well, the minister's statement seemed to indicate uh, that maybe they think they've got this thing under control. And, and certainly the uh, chief medical officer, Dr. Kieran Moore, uh, has given his blessing to these changes. Uh, I'm a little skeptical, i got to tell you, based on some of the stories and some of the numbers that we've seen. I want to bring Dr. Ahmed Aria into the conversation. Uh, Dr. Aria is co-founder of Doctors for Justice, a long-term care and palliative care physician. Uh, doctor, as always, a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanks for the time. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bill. Are you comfortable with these changes and these recommendations? 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, we know that quality of life is so important for our elders who live in long-term care, where the, you know, the life expectancy is around a year and a half. So it's very important that they get to meet their loved ones. And absolutely, it can be done safely, uh, especially when we're allowing in people who are fully vaccinated two weeks after their second dose. Which is are the same parameters, of course, that we're all living under right now to, to make sure we get that second one and wait 14 days so it takes full effect. But the, the concern here about being overly cautious, I think, has to be weighed against the impact that it can have because uh, notwithstanding the Minister Phillips statements that uh, things are, are much better, and I guess you know, when you look at it in a broader sense, they are, doctor, but there are still some pockets of concern here. Yeah, so my concerns uh, arise uh, around two issues. So one issue is that we seem to have, if we look at the numbers and the average of staff who are fully vaccinated, I mean, it was announced by the minister a few weeks ago that we were at 84%, but that's just an average. And there's homes now emerging where uh, definitely the numbers are much lower. For example, there's a home in Burlington with actually an outbreak that has cost four lives, a for-profit long-term care home, where it was found at the start of that outbreak when it came in the media, they only had 52% of their staff fully vaccinated. So clearly that's not enough and we have to take the steps now to ensure all the staff are fully vaccinated. Issue number two, Bill, is that um, with the Delta variant, the whole sort of game of how we manage this has changed. And what that means is that, of course, we still have good protection uh, against um, you know people dying and suffering in long-term care, thankfully, our frail elders. But unfortunately, we're not seeing full protection. And we have some data from the UK that actually tells us that, that uh, even, uh, you know, actually 25% of frail elders who had infections were showing up in hospital, which tells us that these were not people who just had, you know, asymptomatic, um, you know, infections or had very mild symptoms. These were people who were very ill. So we're going to start to see people with breakthrough death in long-term care, unfortunately, who are fully vaccinated, uh, probably in the fall, unless we take measures to improve infection control and staffing. And, and this just underscores something that I've been talking about on the program for the last couple of weeks, Doctor. I think not all of us, but I think a good number of us right now are kind of thinking that we're out of the woods here. You know, I've been double vaccinated. I, I'm going to go and visit my mother in the in the LTC facility. Uh, I should be okay. Uh, you could still be carrying the virus. You could. You, you may not manifest itself in you. You could. You know, there's a number of different things that are going on. And I know, as you've told us many times, the vaccination does not make you bulletproof. You can still get it. You still might get ill. Uh, but if you pass it on to somebody who's in a frail and elderly position, even if they are vaccinated, the results can be disastrous. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think there's some good news and bad news, unfortunately, mixed in what you've just uh, said, Bill. So the good news is, is that if you're fully vaccinated and, you know, you're someone who's healthier and perhaps younger, um, you know, you're, you're more likely, if you do get an infection, to get an infection that's very mild or an infection that has no symptoms at all. And that's mm -hmm. fantastic. Right. That's what we want yeah. with the vaccination. We don't want people to end up in hospital, you know, in our, and in our ICUs again. And that's fantastic. But the issue is, is that if you work in a long term care facility, you could be completely have no symptoms. You could be fully vaccinated and you could bring it in to a place where people who are also fully vaccinated are frail elders. But they you know, the effect of the vaccine is potentially much less. And again, when I say about letting our guard down, I mean, you mentioned about the outbreak in Burlington, and that's tragic. Uh, we had one at St. Joseph's Villa in Dundas just a couple of days ago, uh, and it, it apparently we're told now it emanated from a, a hair salon within in the, 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 the structure within the long-term care facility. But we heard stories about people that were there, and some of them not vaccinated fully, some of them not wearing masks. I mean, wh what part of pandemic don't these people understand? 
Yeah, I mean, I think we're way behind in terms of what we should be doing, um, you know, to provide a high quality infection control. And there's some very logical things, Bill, that are just not happening. I mean, the science is clear that COVID-19 is airborne, actually, yep. at this point in time. And yet, I mean, perhaps surgical masks, the regular masks that we see people wearing out in the public are probably okay. But when you're working with real elders, you want to have the, you know, the, the, you know, the best protection you can offer. So that should mean N95 masks for mm-hmm. family caregivers and staff. I mean, we have staffing situations where right now, if you're a health worker in long-term care, you, anybody can work between multiple homes and unfortunately has to a lot of the times because, you know, they're only offered part-time jobs with no benefits. And that's how they put together a living. But obviously, that's very bad for the care, and it's obviously very bad for infection control. Um, we have staff, even within long-term care homes, who, because they're so short, unfortunately, people have to move between nursing units and between floors. So if they bring in an infection unknowingly and they have no symptoms, even though they're fully vaccinated, it could easily spread throughout the long-term care home. So that doesn't make any sense. To that point, though, Doctor, you, I'm sure saw the story today that uh, uh, there's some stories going around in Queen's Park right now that the government is considering, not ready to enact, but considering uh, making vaccinations mandatory for some healthcare workers. Not all, but some. And I'm, I'm guessing that part of the motivation for that might be, as you mentioned, the, the what I think are drastically low numbers in some of these facilities. I mean, these are people that work with the frail and elderly. You would think that vaccination would be front and foremost with them, but it doesn't seem to be for a lot of them. I, I, I find that troubling that they haven't been vaccinated fully, but uh, mandatory vaccinations, I, I know there's, there's going to be human rights issues and all sorts of things like that, but does the greater good supersede the, the fact that you really don't want to get vaccinated for whatever reason? So I absolutely think it does. I mean, as a health worker, my foremost duty is to prevent my patients. Uh, you know, it, it's actually to do no harm to the patients that I serve, and I'm serving a very vulnerable and sick population, and I would want to do everything I could to protect them, and I think that would be the case for all health workers across the board. But I would outline uh, to, you know, everyone who's listening, Bill, that the vast majority of people who I meet who maybe are not fully vaccinated at this point working in long-term care are not anti-vaxxers. These are not people who are believing in conspiracy theories. There might be a small percentage of those people, and undoubtedly they shouldn't be in healthcare at all, um, there's probably two groups of people that we should urgently address where we can make some, you know, leeway. Um, one group is people who are kind of on the fence and maybe just delaying it a little bit. And if they had a one-on-one conversation with their family doctor, maybe a colleague that they trust, maybe a conversation in a language that would, uh, you know, where they could understand some details, they would go and get it. And we need to give those people, uh, you know, a big push. The second group of people, which I think is the majority of people who are unvaccinated in long-term care, are people who are facing structural barriers. So remember, uh, you know, a typical story of somebody working in long-term care as a PSW, you might be working 100 hours a week, very hard work where, you know, it's actually physically demanding. You're picking up people, repositioning them, uh, you have high risk of physical injuries on the job. Um, you might be taking a bus in between uh, different long-term care homes. And many of these people are working women, so they have caregiving duties at home as well. So. And, and then the, on top of that, with the staffing shortages, if you leave for a day or two because you're sick and you're experiencing these vaccine side effects and you need that time off, sadly, no one might be around to give your residents a shower, 
to turn them on time, to make sure they're fed properly and hydrated. So it's a really tough scenario, Bill. And I think we have to move forward. Uh, like Undoubtedly, I agree with the concept of mandatory vaccinations, but we have to move forward with compassion and empathy and reduce the barriers that are preventing people from getting the vaccine. How pragmatic and how practical is it, though, doctor, to take the vaccines to those patients and those people and those staff workers, you know, to have a, a clinic? I mean, we've we had floating clinics in Hamilton. I think most communities have had those where they'll just set up shop for that that day and just say, here's a, I mean, years ago, the first flu vaccine I ever got was because they, they had it at the radio station. You know, I just had to walk down the hall and bingo, there it was. Okay, that saves me a lot of time because I, I always wanted to get it, but I never, you know, yeah, I got to do that tomorrow and you never did. But when it's right there and you want it, it's it's, it's easier to access. Uh, I, I know in the early days of the vaccination program, it just wasn't possible because of, of supply, but we seem to have solved that problem for the most part. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Supply is not an issue. Uh, I think really the issue is is that the vaccination of staff in long-term care homes has been left up to you know the administration, the medical leadership, and as we know, Bill, that's completely variable in multiple long-term care homes. I mean, some long-term care homes I know and I work in have done a fantastic job of getting their vaccination rates up, and they've worked so hard. In other long-term care homes, they've just kind of left it on the staff to figure it out and you know figure out how to make this work for them and that's not appropriate so speaking about what you were sharing about uh, having a mobile vaccine clinic roll up to a long-term care home that is definitely a good strategy but it will only achieve partial success and i'll explain why several partial you know like several reasons so one reason is that of course uh, you know people work shifts in long-term care people Mm -hmm. work day you know days and also people work evenings and nights so you know you'll miss possibly the evening and night staff who it's very important to get vaccinated Uh, another issue is is that if people have questions and maybe they don't you know like this random team of people just shows up that they don't know and don't understand maybe that'll prevent them from getting the vaccine and then the third issue is is that as many of us have already experienced I mean, this vaccine comes with some side effects. And if you're scared about getting that sore arm and at the same time you're performing that hard labor on the front lines where you're lifting and repositioning people, I mean, maybe you'll be, you'll be afraid of getting it at work. So I think we need to give people the option of either getting it at work and bring it to them at a time that's convenient to them or the time, you know, give them time off, paid time off and actually paid transport to a vaccination clinic. That's an alternative that should be considered. I would think that the onus is on the, on the operators of these facilities too, to, to you know, talk to staff and, and have that conversation about you know, what would work best for you. If you want to get a vaccination, how, how, how can we facilitate that? And I don't know that that's happening in a lot of the facilities. Yeah, once again, it's extremely variable, just like the COVID-19 response. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, like, some really good homes, what they've done very briefly. So, um, you know, I've seen some homes where the medical director, the physician who is in charge of medical affairs in the long-term care home, uh, has they've been literally holding vaccine town halls and clinics for their staff on a weekly basis. Some of them have slowed down now because their success rate, I mean, they have over 90 or 95% of their staff vaccinated in some of these homes, but they've worked hard to get there. And they've had the individual one-on-one conversations themselves. These homes have actually paid for taxi fare to vaccine clinics. They've held friendly competitions between different nursing units and uh, had rewards for, uh, you know, the units that got their staff fully vaccinated first. They've arranged for language-specific information for, you know, different groups of health workers. So, for example, a home that I work in, uh, you know, the cleaners, uh, by and large, spoke Portuguese. And there was a large amount of them who weren't getting vaccinated. So they brought in people to speak to them in Portuguese. They gave them handouts in Portuguese. And after some time, it was a ripple effect where eventually they all, you know, almost 
all of them became fully vaccinated. But it takes that effort and that engagement and that time building trust. And in other long-term care homes, once again, none of this has actually happened. And it's been just left upon the staff to kind of figure out how mm-hmm. this would work. I got a couple of minutes left, and there's one other issue I just want to lay on the table here, Doctor, uh, and, and that's the future. Uh, I've seen some modeling now for the fall. I mean, we all want to have a great summer. I want to go to the Tiger Cat Games. I want to hopefully see the Blue Jays in, 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 back in Toronto. That's fabulous. I want to go to movies. But uh, the modeling I've seen now indicates that, well, kids are going to be back in school. A lot of people are going to be returning to work. They're indicating that there could be a spike, not necessarily a, 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 another wave, but a spike. Uh, and they, they're concerned about that. Are you? Yeah, I, I am concerned. And I think it's important that we take precautions. So I'm not, of course, as concerned as we maybe should have been in the first and second wave. I will outline that again, and that's because our vaccination rate is uh, is really, really good, and we have more and more people who are fully vaccinated. But I'm specifically concerned about two populations. One is people who are unvaccinated uh, in the general population and also children, as we know, under 12, who are not yet eligible to receive vaccines. And then the other population, as we've talked about today, Bill, are people in whom vaccines might not be fully effective. So these are people who live in long-term care, people receiving home care, elders, people with disabilities, people who are immunocompromised. And we still have to be very cautious and protect them from, you know, suffering the effects of this virus. So as a result then, I know that working on a child vaccine, we're told probably not much in the way of of news there until maybe even the end of this year. So that's not going to happen anytime soon. How do you incorporate some preventative measures to try to mitigate any impacts like that? Yeah, so I think there's some parallels between some of the conversations around protecting children in schools, um, which is not my area of expertise, but I can give you some general information, and also protecting elders in long-term care. There's some parallels. So number one, uh, as I mentioned, we have to recognize that COVID-19 is airborne. That means that both long-term care homes and schools have to have adequate ventilation, filtration systems to prevent airborne transmission. And once again, we talked about the N95 masks. The second issue, I mean, in schools, we're talking about small class sizes. Uh, and people being in these sort of school, like these bubbles, where there's one teacher with a small group of students, uh, which would be better. And similarly, I think that's what should happen in long-term care, where rather than having uh, health workers moving between uh, homes, uh, you know, moving between different areas of the long-term care home, we should have enough health workers so that they would be looking after after a small group of residents. And if there was, uh, you know, an infectious process like COVID-19, the Delta variant, I mean, it would be easily contained because they wouldn't be moving throughout the entire home or between multiple homes the frustration of course and you're absolutely right on all of those points is that these are all things that are before the ministry now i mean and should have been enacted a long time ago some of them have been in various forms you know they have talked about the idea that you know people are working part-time and having to do two jobs maybe three uh but their program their layout is is said well we'll fix that over the next four years which is of little consequence to the residents of those facilities now and and the ventilation systems well we already know about that in the air conditioning so it's a work in progress i guess the only way we're going to see some progress in that is to just keep our our governments accountable and make sure that they do this and uh, work with the best possible information as we've been doing doctor it's always a pleasure thank you so much for the time today stay well and uh, we'll talk again soon yeah, thanks for having me, Bill. Take care. Take care. Dr. Ahmed Ayri, co-founder of Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care and a palliative care physician uh, who has a great deal of expertise in this, and we've had him on the program many, many times. Uh, so it's going to be better for long-term care facilities, for visitation and for the, the staff, but there's still a lot of work to be done there. Uh, we can't take our foot off the gas pedal here. That's what all the doctors are telling us, especially for those that are unvaccinated because there is still a possibility of exposure. 
The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.